Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Omicron panic is causing more lockdowns and more vaccine mandates. Should we lower the voting age? Plus, Maxime Bernier on his leadership review. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Monday, December 6, 2021. This is the rare Monday edition of the program. I'm working on a little bit of a project that's going to have me out of town on Tuesday. Hopefully you'll know all about it in the coming day. I don't want to jinx it by announcing it and then having to change it or perhaps cancel it altogether. But hopefully by the time the next show rolls around, you'll know why I did the show on a different day this week. Uh, you probably wouldn't if I if I didn't say anything, you probably wouldn't have been wouldn't have even noticed. You would have thought, oh, I guess the I guess it's a Monday show, whatever. In any case, I think sometimes hosts think that people pay closer attention to scheduling and programming stuff than they actually do. But maybe you do. Who knows? If you like the show better on Mondays, maybe we'll uh, keep it going. But nonetheless, hope your start of the week is uh, well. I hope it's a good start to the week and not a bad one. There are a lot of bad starts to the week. Like if you're in the Czech Republic or Germany, for example. How's that for a segue? In the Czech Republic, they are going the way of Greece, as we talked about last week, and mandating vaccination for anyone over the age of 60. So this story, if you look at it here, is fascinating. It's the outgoing government. So they've got nothing to lose. And they're saying that if you're 60 plus, vaccination is going to be mandatory. Now in Greece, if you don't get vaccinated and you're 60 plus, you've got to pay a fine of 100 euros a month. So 12, uh, 1,200 euros a year for as long as the vaccine mandate is in effect. I'm not actually sure what the punishment is going to be in the Czech Republic if you don't go along with the vaccine mandate. What I do know, there was just this bizarre story last week. It's actually a picture's worth a thousand words where the president was swearing in the prime minister and the president had COVID. So he had to do it from this like plexiglass prisoner's box in a wheelchair surrounded by people in hazmat suits instead of just, I don't know, having it by Zoom or Skype or something. It's the epitome of this could have been an email. And now they're going and deciding that citizens in the Czech Republic are not deserving of their own freedoms if they're 60 plus vaccination is the choice of the government not of the individual and in Germany which has put in sweeping restrictions on the unvaccinated if their cases don't go down the German government is now considering making vaccination mandatory population wide. Lars Klingbeil, who is the secretary general of Germany's SPD party, said that if the new lockdown measures for the unvaccinated didn't lower case rates sufficiently, politicians would have to take immediate action. Outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel on her way out has said that legislation will be drafted to make COVID vaccination mandatory and that politicians in Germany will vote on it in February. Now, February is when Austria's sweeping vaccine mandate is going into effect and her successor, Olaf Scholz, CNBC says, is expecting the proposal to be approved because he personally supports introducing a vaccine mandate. Now, I want to make a broader point here and, and to quote Norm Macdonald about Germany. I don't know if you all are history buffs or not, but Germany, believe it or not, has a bit of a sordid past when it comes to dictators and autocrats. Now, I am not comparing Angela Merkel to Hitler, not in the least. What I am saying is that countries that have been through the past that Germany has, you think would be very, very motivated 
to ensure that the government does not start making decisions that trample on the rights of the individual. I look at the decision being made in the Czech Republic, for example. And Greece, ah, whatever. They, Greece just does what they want. They're overly reliant on government because no one likes working there. The Czech Republic has seen a communist government in the past. And typically, formerly communist countries are the most conservative, the most liberty-minded. You talk to conservatives in Estonia and in places like, oh, I don't know, Kosovo, and these are the most freedom-loving people you'll find. And so it's shocking to see how many of these people just go along with the government trampling on their rights as though they've forgotten, in the case of communism, they've forgotten their lives just 30-some-odd years ago. Austria, I think one of the reasons we see in Austria such pushback to the government's vaccine mandate is for that very reason, because you've got a generation of Austrians that actually does know their history, that doesn't want a government that's going to just march all over their individual rights and freedoms as though it's no big deal, because they understand. These people that are protesting understand what happens when you give up the most fundamental basic rights that you have, such as what goes into your body. And I actually, believe it or not, when we've talked about these things in the past, I, I get a bit of pushback from people saying, why are you talking about Austria? Why are you talking about China? Why are you talking about Germany? And, and I don't actually care about it because I'm going to keep talking about these things because if you don't think that what's happening in Canada is connected to this, you are missing the big story that's taking place on how interconnected a lot of these countries and their government's responses truly are. Just take a look at February. I mean, the Austria vaccine mandate is going into effect in February, which is also when Germany is voting on its. And it's no surprise that this is all coming within the span of a couple of weeks. We had, I mean, Turkmenistan, as I've said, this is, they were the trendsetter. Turkmenistan back in the summer had the vaccine mandate. And I won't even try to say the president's name again, because I think that was like, 20 minutes of the show was me trying to figure out the syllables of his name last week. But uh, aside from Turkmenistan, you had Austria, then you had Greece, and then you had the Czech Republic, and now you've got Germany just on the precipice of it. And so if this is four developed European nations in the span of a couple of weeks that are talking about widespread mandatory vaccination, I don't think it's going to take all that long for there to be a couple of more, and then a couple more, and then it comes over the Atlantic, and all of a sudden, all of these Canadians that say, oh, why are you wasting my time talking about things that are going on in other countries, are going to be wondering, oh, wait, how, how did, the, we, I didn't see this coming, where, where, where did this vaccine mandate come from? And, and this is the whole point, is that we, we've spent the last, much of the last two years, people that are concerned about civil liberties, trying to push back on some of these unscientific and unfree measures being championed by governments, especially travel restrictions. And then Omicron comes along, you know, skipping new and skipping the Xi variant or the Xi variant. Omicron comes along and it's as though we've taken two steps back for every one step forward we've taken. And there haven't been a lot of step forwards in the last few months, it feels like. But nevertheless, it feels like we are headed backwards. And if you look at some of these travel restrictions, this story jumped up because at first the government tried to throw a net over some of these African countries. It was South Africa that got scapegoated for this variant that had actually been circulating in Europe for a couple of months. And there was this family, Leonard and Charlotte Sked or Skeed of Brandon, Manitoba, have been quarantined involuntarily in a hotel in Toronto because they came home from South Africa just a couple of days after the new restrictions were announced. They say they feel criminalized for these measures. Not only have they been tested for COVID, they've been tested six times 
Six times and every one of these tests came back negative and then they were allowed to re-enter the country but still shoved in a hotel. They have had to spend, just to get back, $23,500 on flights, COVID tests, and hotels just to navigate around new travel restrictions. And then once they get in the country, they're not even allowed the courtesy of going home. And then to add insult to injury, all of these regular travel measures or travel inconveniences like their bags being lost and terrible food that they're being served in the quarantine hotel and all of that. But the government says, oh, that we've got to protect Canadians. We've got to protect Canadians against Omicron. Yeah, and once Roe comes along, and what comes after Roe? Is it Psy uh, or something? Uh, Roe and Psy and Kai and all of these other variants will come around and it'll feel like we're going right back to square one. This headline, I think, needs to be shared with you because the headline encapsulates what I think the government is going for. Planning a trip over the holidays? Expect airport delays and sudden travel restrictions, experts say. Now, I don't know what kind of expertise you need to say that government could just screw you at any given moment. But if, if, if noting that makes you an expert, then so be it. But this is what the government's trying to do. They're trying to make travel so unstable and so unpredictable and so unpleasant that no one goes anywhere. And, and you see some restrictions coming in through the back door. I just noticed on the weekend, the Windsor Essex Public Health Office has put in gathering restrictions stricter than what Ontario has. So they've invoked their power as a local health region to start imposing gathering restrictions, mandating social distancing in restaurants, starting to roll back some of the reopening we've seen. And all of this just makes us feel like we are in the midst of the never-ending emergency, the permanent lockdown about to start the third year of our two weeks to flatten the curve. So it does feel like we are all being hoodwinked here because people that have done everything they've been asked to People that did the self-isolation, people that got their two shots and are about to get their third shot, people that didn't see grandma, people that did all of these things that the government asked them to do and then later made them do. And the reward at the end of it is more of it. We had government project its great reopening plan. We were supposed to drop the mask mandate in the new year. We were supposed to drop masks, I think, by about March or maybe it was November. Who knows now? Every day is pretty much an eternity. And all of this is now in jeopardy. So what we are seeing unfolding now is part of a global effort by governments to roll back any of the reopening plans we've seen, all for a variant that hasn't actually given us reason to panic. All of the early evidence we're seeing shows that Omicron is more infectious and less severe. That is what you want in a pandemic, something that everyone's going to get to acquire some natural immunity and most people are not going to be hit all that hard by. If we, had, if we could turn COVID into a cold, a seasonal cold, we could all just get on with our lives. But natural immunity is like a big swear word to lawmakers. It is. And, and they pretend, despite this, that, oh, well, we don't know anything, we don't know what's happening, and we've got to plunge right back into the overreactive uncertainty of March 2020, which may have been justified when we genuinely didn't know what was happening. But now that we do know and can see what's happening is being used to justify more infringements on your and my freedoms. And if a government, if a Canadian government tries to impose another lockdown, my message to them is good frigging luck. Because I do not think most Canadians have it in them to go along with it. 
And I, I know last week I talked about that poll of Canadians that found a lot of people didn't want their unvaccinated relatives over. And I had a lot of you listening that didn't buy the poll. I do buy the poll. I, I actually believe that that's where most Canadians are on this. I, I believe that people that want to cling to their civil liberties are increasingly a minority in Canada. That's just my own pessimism seeping in. But even even in spite of that, I think if the government says we're going into lockdown again, it's going to turn a lot more people into fire-breathing libertarians. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there was a, a line I saw in some article a while ago that said there are no libertarians in a pandemic. And my response to that is I, I think eventually you have only libertarians in a pandemic. And it's taken a little bit longer to reach that point than I thought it would initially. But I, I do believe genuinely that another lockdown is going to do that, that people simply are not going to play ball if this is what government is demanding of them. So if you don't like looking around the world, well, you should start. You should start looking around the world because a lot of this is the model for what more and more countries are going to do. And then it is only a matter of time before it shows up on your doorstep. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Here's an idea that hasn't come up in a while. It's not a new one by any stretch. Lowering the voting age to 16. Uh, there is a group of teenagers that has filed an application with the Ontario Superior Court arguing that the Canada Elections Act is discriminating against their right to be free from discrimination based on age by barring Canadians under 18 from voting. There are 13 of them in the claim, according to a press release from Children First Canada, calling for the unconstitutional restriction on minor voting to be repealed. Now, Here's the thing. One of the challenges whenever this has come up is that the response that typically people are left with is an emotional one. We don't want kids voting. We don't want teens voting. But if you try to have the debate logically, you'll find that any line really is arbitrary because you could be a youth and still be working and contributing. And even if you don't have to pay income tax, you're still paying tax when you go and purchase things. And more importantly, adults who don't pay tax still have the right to vote. So making voting a condition of paying taxes doesn't really work. If we talk about maturity, there could be a mature 16-year-old who is uh, probably more adept at parsing what politicians are saying than an immature 18, 19, 20, or perhaps even 50, 60-year-old. And there are other things as well that we would look at that say, well, you know, they're under the thumb of their parents. Well, so could you be at 18 and 19. And when you try to go through this, all you're left with is really the idea that we have to draw a line somewhere. And wherever we choose to draw it is going to be arbitrary. For example, the voting age being at 18 was reduced, I think it was in 1970 or 1972, from 21. We have the drinking age, which varies depending on where in the country you are. In some provinces, it's 18. Other provinces, it's 19. You head south to the U.S., and it is 21 most places. So all of these ideas of, of trying to come up with an age of majority for somewhere have to include some values judgment. Now, the way the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is worded, they have a claim. Under, under Section 3, you have a claim that says every Canadian citizen has the right to vote, not every Canadian but. And under Section 15 of the Charter, you have voting rights, which guarantee people freedom from discrimination based on a number of criteria, including age. 
So if you look at the plain text reading of the charter, which is part of the Canadian Constitution, yeah, absolutely. Children are being denied the right to vote in an unconstitutional way. But oddly enough, you look at this and, and they're not actually asking for the voting age to be abolished. They're asking for it to be lowered. So under that same argument, the voting age shouldn't exist at all. Infant voting should be allowed if you take the plain text view of the charter that they're pushing for. Now, I know politically why people on the right would not want there to be underage people voting because we know that the older you get, the more conservative you get statistically. So the, the more youth turnout is there in an election, the better it seems to work out for the left. Although if you are taking the view that children are just going to be proxies for their parents, you know, I think conservatives tend to have bigger families. So it might work out that way as well, where you get some of these like seven, eight, nine, uh, ten kid families. Not that those are all that common. And imagine walking into a polling station with, <laughs> with, with 12 votes or something like that. Like that. But in any case, the point is that there are practical reasons where a lot of people on the right do not want and would not want the voting age lowered. But if you're trying to actually have a discussion about it and come up with a silver bullet legal debate or legal argument, it's difficult to come up with one that doesn't really just appeal to ideas that we have. Here's the thing, though. If we are going to reopen voting, we have to reopen a lot of other things. And, and I would be completely fine having a general discussion about age of maturity and age of majority in the context of paying taxes, in the context of having to make decisions for yourself and being able to make decisions for yourself. Because what we have now is a patchwork. We say that a 19-year-old, you have to be 19 to make the decision to drink alcohol for yourself. We have to be 19 to make the decision to smoke for yourself. But you can vote at 18, but you can get a job at 14, and you you can work on the family farm even when you're younger than 14, and even though that attaches with it some risk. We have lots of things that you can do. You can babysit at a certain age. Like All of these things are different, and they're all based on the fact that people have tried to draw arbitrary lines for things that are just intuitive for quite some time. And that's why we should be trying to take government out of the equation on these things and allow parents and their kids to make decisions that are right for them when kids are mature enough to do things. Let's face it, there are lots of kids that you might be comfortable with doing something at 14 that other kids you wouldn't trust doing it until 15 or even 16 or perhaps never. But that's why this debate is such an annoying one because there is no right answer. And it bothers me because I value above all else when you're having these sorts of discussions, I value consistency. And whenever I'm confronted with an inconsistency in a view that I hold, I have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, hang on, is that actually an inconsistency? And if it is, do I have to change the view or do I have to amend the value that I hold? And that's a practice that I'm happy to partake in. That's where I, why free speech and open debate are so important because you have to be able to challenge your views. Whereas voting age is like, yeah, if I want to be consistent, the voting age shouldn't exist at all. But I know that's impractical. I know that's not going to happen. So it's one of these situations that just has no right answer that is just going to be dealt with warring factions who are really battling over something that isn't pure and isn't ideological. They're, they're, they're arguing over outcome. 
The people that are saying this is great are inherently left-wing people that love the idea of flooding the voter rolls with 16-year-olds. The people that are against this are conservatives who are mortified by the idea of having more 16-year-olds voting. So if we can at least be honest about people's motivations, I feel we could see past the fact that there isn't perhaps a moral high ground we can cling to on either side of this debate. We've got to end things for this segment here. When we come back, though, we'll talk to Maxime Bernier about the leadership review that he survived very handily in the PPC. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, we've talked about it at great length on this program, the significant rise in People's Party of Canada support from the 2019 election, where the party got 1.62% of the vote, to this past election in September, where they nearly tripled that, coming up at 4.94% of the vote, more than double what the Green Party got. Nevertheless, after two unsuccessful elections, Maxime Bernier, the founding PPC leader, put himself through a leadership review and the results came in this past weekend and of 57.5% of the PPC members who voted in the leadership review Maxime Bernier had the support of 95.6% of them the question was very simple do you support Maxime Bernier remaining as leader of the People's Party of Canada so PPC leader Maxime Bernier has said he has a renewed mandate and he's forging ahead into the next election whenever that may come and he joins us now. Maxime, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. I'm very pleased to be with you and uh, very uh, proud with that result. Uh, I believe that uh, we have a strong mandate to go on and push our ideas. So why did you decide to have a leadership review? Uh, Because, you know, after three years, uh, yes, like you said, uh, I funded that party. And after three years, I didn't win the last election. I didn't win my, my own uh, former riding in Bose uh, uh, in 2019, didn't win my own riding in Bose in 2021. And I said, it must be the time to have a leadership review. Uh, and I think yet to, to have a mandate to do what we need to do as, as a political party that is growing. And, uh, and we decided to do that with uh, an independent firm uh, based in Montreal, the process started early, uh, early December, early November, up to uh, last uh, Friday. So very pleased, good result, um, and now we're ready for the future. Now, I know that when the leadership review was announced, there was a cutoff point. No one who became a member after September 20th, the, the election, could, could vote in it. Did that exclude people that may have previously left the party because they might have had some concerns over your leadership? Well, you know, we, uh, we decided we needed a date for that. So we decided the election date would be a good date just to do the cutoff. And we did it with that date. No, I, when we said that publicly and on social media, we didn't have any members that called us or sent an email about, oh, you know, I didn't have time to renew my membership. So, uh, no, I think it was a fair process. 
So moving ahead, you've got this mandate, 95.6% of those who said they supported you. What do you believe is the benchmark for success moving forward? Because I know you've talked about in the past how it took the Green Party 30 years to, to get to the point where they're, where they're at now, which a lot of those gains tend to have been uh, rolled back in, in the last election. But, but for you, looking ahead to the next election, where do you need to go to convince your members and your supporters that the PPC is still on the right track? I believe at the next election, it will be important for us as a political party to have a seat and actually for me as a leader to have a seat. And I can tell you that uh, I don't know where I will run, uh, but uh, I believe that maybe it won't be in Quebec. We will look at all the writings and take the best one for me where I have the better chances to win uh, that writing so it can be out west. And uh, my goal is to move in that riding that we will choose a couple of months before the election. And uh, so I, I wish I'll be able to be back in Parliament. That would be an important goal for me personally. And for the party, I believe that, you know, from 5%, 4.9, like you said, uh, you know, if we can go to 8%, that would be great also. Step by step, we need to be there. Actually, right now, in the polls, we are around 10%. So let's build that party, and that's what we are doing right now. Actually, Andrew, what we want to do, we want to reapprove or approve candidates as soon as possible early next year. So we don't want to do like we did at the last before the last general election, uh, we were rushing to approve our candidates at the last minute. We will do that in the beginning of next year with an open and fair process. And uh, our candidates will be able to be active on social media, to campaign in their writing. That will help us to be ready for the national election that can be in two years or three years. What you just described of, of looking for a seat that might be a, a little bit more winnable than, than Bose, uh, we saw in the last election Derek Sloan decide to run in a, a seat that he thought was safe out west and did uh, not particularly well there. A lot of Albertans uh, said they were very frustrated with someone trying to sort of jump into Alberta despite not being from there. Are you concerned that would be your reception if you tried something like that? But first, we must say that uh, he was not a member of a party, he didn't create a party. People were voting for him as an independent. And we are a real political party all across the country. We have an organization all across the country. So that's why I said also, it must be important for me personally to move in that riding, not just being there a week before the election like Derek did, but to be serious about that and to move there. Actually, I had that discussion when I was in Florida with my wife, Catherine, and she understand that uh, as a leader, my goal will be to be elected. So that's why I believe that moving there before the election, uh, people will look at me as, as, as being a, a real candidate and a real member of parliament if I'm elected for them in that riding. You and I talked about this during the last election when I, w I was out with you in Alberta, and I, I saw, to your credit, a lot of huge support in, in places that aren't even traditional conservative strongholds like downtown Edmonton. But uh, one of the, the things that I, I've noted and a lot of people have seen throughout the last election was that there was a lot of PPC support from people that might not have been historically conservative voters. They may be non-voters. They might have even been green or NDP voters, but they were very against vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and, and found the 
PPC to be the only party uh, pushing for these things. If in two or three years, vaccine passports are not a thing, COVID is not a thing, we hope. How do you recapture or, or maintain those supporters? Yeah, absolutely. I hope it won't be a subject of the next election. You know, in three years, uh, we are living in, in a kind of a totalitarian state here in Canada. So, uh, but you're right saying that all these people, because we were and we are still the only party that is fighting for individual freedom and personal responsibility. So at the next general election, if it's not the main subject, uh, I believe that the economy will be the subject, like inflation. You know, I spoke about it a long time ago, and inflation is a hidden tax. Uh, it's, uh, it's hurting mostly the poor people in our country. Uh, we need to fight inflation. We have the solution for that. I'm looking at the conservatives. They're speaking about inflation right now. But the solution is to stop government spending, and they're not credible on that. The, uh, the rational campaign... They had a plan not to balance the budget in 10 years, so that was not serious, and they had a lot of spending. We need to stop the spending, we need to balance the budget, we need to be serious about it, and we have a concrete plan to uh, uh, bring back the economy in a, in a way that uh, it won't hurt Canadians. So we, want, we have a plan to fight inflation, and I believe that can be the subject. If it's not inflation, it can be Western alienation. You were there, Andrew, in Alberta, and you know that there's a lot of Albertans and Western mm -hmm. Canadians that are not happy with the Constitution. They're not happy with uh, climate change, with the equalization formula. We are still the only political party that is speaking about that, have a solution for the equalization that must be less generous and fair for every province. Uh, climate change, we're the only one that won't do anything about climate change. We'll let that to provinces. So there's a lot of many subjects and, I know, uh, and policies, and I don't know which one uh, will, be, uh, will be the subject of that election, but we will be ready, and I believe that we'll be able to grow our support. Let's talk a little bit about the numbers here, because in the last election, the Green Party, as I mentioned earlier, had 2.3%, but still was able to turn that into two seats because of the distribution, whereas the PVC more than double that, but zero seats. So a lot of this in Canada comes down to where the support is and, and how centralized or, or decentralized it is. I, I know you and I spoke during the election, and you said that the PPC might reevaluate its position on electoral reform and, and proportional representation after the election. Have you had a chance to do that yet? No, we, did not, we didn't look at it right now, but that must be something that we'll look at. Uh, but actually, also, our goal for the next election will be to have a candidate in every riding to be able to increase our percentage of the vote. We had only 312 candidates at the last general uh, 312 candidates, yes, at the last general election. So we'll need to have a full slate, and uh, we'll have time to do that. But also now, after two elections the 2019 and uh, uh, 2021, we know where we are stronger. And yes, it's in rural Alberta, rural Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So we will put more focus on these uh, regions to be able to have some candidates elected also. So we, uh, and we know that the electoral system won't change before the next general election. So we will do our best to be able to elect somebody under the uh, present system. 
You saw, I know, in the last election, and I think you told the story on the campaign trail, that a whole bunch of reporters were there when you kicked off your campaign. They asked you questions <laughs> for quite a while, and then at the end of it didn't really run any stories. And it wasn't until the very end of the election that a lot of media started talking about the PPC. But again, at the same time, you look after the election, uh, the PPC has run twice, has not elected any candidates twice. How do you remain relevant to people? How do you get your message out when you don't have any seats in the House of Commons? Yeah, that's a challenge for us. Uh, you know, we are more active on social media. Now we have a bigger team. You know, this party is there for a long term. You know, we won't disappear. We uh, have a person in charge of our social media, director in charge of our social media now. We have uh, a director in charge of the organization across the country. We are building a team. And as you know, uh, we spent about $1.3 million at the last general election. And because we had 4.9% of the vote, we'll be able to have half of these expenses reimbursed. Uh, so we'll have about $600,000 in the bank in a couple of months. We don't, we didn't have, and we don't have any deficit. Uh, we didn't run any deficit in the past. We'll have a surplus at the end of this year. Uh, our financial statement is ending. Uh, annual financial statement will be at the end of December. And I can tell you we'll have a surplus there. So we have we are in a strong financial position. We are building a, a new team at the other office and also our, our organization across the country. So the challenge, and I'll, I'm a little bit more active on social media. I'm doing more videos. I think it's important. But also I will test the mainstream national media. Uh, I'll do a press conference uh, for the end of the, this session at uh, mid-December and our position and our vision of what happened in Parliament uh, since uh, they started that session. So we'll see if they will cover us. But that's a challenge, actually. And my goal also is to be able to travel across the country. As you know, I'm not... Um, double vax and you know uh, actually i had covid actually and uh, and so i think i have a very good antibodies but uh, i'm i'm not able to travel by plane or by train across the country that can be difficult for me but we'll look what we can do so my goal is to be on the ground active on social media and also i'm doing i will do some uh, press conference in ottawa one or two every session We'll see if the mainstream media will be there to cover us. They must be because we we are at 10 percent right now in the polls and the Green Party is around two, three percent. So and the Green Party is they're going bankrupt and we have money in the bank and we're ready to to go and grow this party at the next step. And that would be my challenge for the next two years. Yeah, and one interesting dilemma here, and, and I don't know if they're going to change the rules, but if they keep the same rules the Leaders' Debates Commission had in the last election, you would be on the debate stage next time, as I understand it, because the party received 4% of the votes nationally in the previous election. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, I don't expect that they, I don't think that they will change the, the rules. Uh, that would be unfair. So, and I'll be there, I'll be on the stage, and that would be interesting. I'm looking forward for that because that would be a real debate. We are right now the only real opposition in Ottawa. Look what happened last week with the uh, uh, t t uh, conversion therapy. 
the conservatives, the liberals, everybody unanimously, they voted for that deal. And we have a different position on that. So I believe that uh, that debate, when it will happen, will be very interesting because on climate change, on equalization, on conversion therapy, on inflation, uh, you can name it, we'll have a different position and Canadians will be able to listen, to, to have, a, have an opportunity to see me debating. But also, I will have an opportunity to reach more people that are not maybe on social media. So I believe the next election would be another important step for the growth of our party. Just one last question, Maxime. I, I know you have been tweeting about it. You decided to take a, a few weeks away with your lovely wife in Florida. And I know you just came back, I, I think, about a week ago. Uh, do you miss Florida yet? <laughs> yes, I did for the freedom because, you know, we, we are not able to go to a cinema. We are not able to go to a restaurant. We are not able to participate in civil society. I can tell you when I was in Florida, we enjoyed that and with friends. So that was fun over there. Now, I'm, like I said, I'm going back in a kind of a jail. And actually, for me, as a leader of a party, my goal is to build this party across this, uh, across this uh, country. And if I'm not able to travel, that would be a big, uh, a big challenge for me. And, uh, and I'm still, you know, I'm back and it's, it's like we are in the election campaign when I did rallies against lockdown and, and mandates. And I believe that I'll have to go back and I'll be, uh, I'll be on the street with our people to fight that and try to preserve uh, the, the, the freedom that we must have in this country as a democratic country that we don't have right now. People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier is staying on as leader after receiving 95.6% of the vote in the leadership review, which just wrapped up on the weekend. Maxime, thanks so much. A Merry Christmas to you and uh, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Have a nice day. Bye. That was PPC leader Maxime Bernier. Still, by the way, no response. I, I've been trying to do a year-end interview with conservative leader Aaron O'Toole to talk about very similar things, how the last election went, what the plans are for 2022, and this has not yet materialized. So hopefully we'll be able to have Aaron O'Toole on the show uh, very shortly. We'll talk to any of the party leaders. I've interviewed Justin Trudeau. It hasn't been for about six, okay, I guess coming up on seven years now, and I'm not holding my breath. He'll come back. But you know what? The invitation is always there. With that, I've got a bit adieu for today. We will be back in a few days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.